Hello and thank you again for joining us. Uh, my name is Mike Menninger and I am the host of Financial Planning Explained. I'm a certified financial planner and also the uh, founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. Uh, here we are on week two uh, with Serenia Feynman, who is a family law attorney uh, of Vetrano, Vetrano and Feynman in Pennsylvania. And one thing I didn't ask last time and I just realized when we were uh, chatting before this week's episode is tell me a little bit more about your firm. Is it just the three of you or do you have multiple attorneys? How many attorneys are over there? So we're what you would call a, a boutique family law firm. So everybody in our office does family law. Um, there's myself and uh, my two partners who are husband and wife. Um, that's the Vetrano and Vetrano. Oh, that's Mr. and Mrs. Vetrano. Mr. and Mrs. Vetrano. Now, <laughs> okay. Mr. Vetrano, um, he, he does civil appeals. He's the only one that doesn't do family. So, so people will hire him to do their appellate work um, in any type of civil case. So he doesn't do criminal appeals, he just does civil. But he is the only one that does that. And the rest of us, so we have, um, at present we have two other attorneys in the office. Um, we're, we're hiring one now, um, but we, um, so we have right now four of us that are doing family law with the hope of a, of and a you fifth. do only family law? Only family only law. Family in family law. law, that's, I mean, that's divorce. Um, and there, that's with divorce is, you know, equitable distribution. Right. That's the division of the marital estate, um, alimony. Right. There's child support if there's children, custody of the children. Right. Um, and then that also could be prenuptial agreements. I would say that's the happy part of what we do. Um, and there's uh, protection from abuse actions. And that's the complete opposite of a prenuptial okay. agreement. The least happy part of what right. you might do in family law. Um, and there's also can be a lot of like post-divorce issues that might come up um, as well. So we we that's that's really the gamut of family law. It does not include wills and estates. And people always thank think you for that. that. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> so post-divorce issues. Mm -hmm. The only post-divorce issue that I can think of that would require going back to the courts is if it's amidst alimony that is based upon one of the two incomes and that changes dramatically and therefore they readjust the alimony. What other potential post-divorce issues are there? And that's if you make in your property settlement agreement the alimony modifiable. Because oh. a lot of agreements you'll make them non-modifiable. So that's a, that is an option. If the court orders alimony, it must be modifiable under the law. But the parties all the time, um, and my general rule of thumb with, with parties is, and, and regardless of which side I'm representing, to be truthful, if the alimony duration is going to be like three years, four at most, um, I generally will say make it non-modifiable. Right. Simply Why? because Why? you could be coming back every year. You'll spend your alimony to, to argue right. about alimony. I know. It's and you've spent so much money to negotiate the deal. Sure. Um, and so factor that in your mind that whatever this number is, is what it is. It's going to get... I'm going to get this or I'm going to pay this, depending on right. um, which of side course. of the coin you're on, for the three or four years. If you start exceeding that, that's where you, you start having to include provisions for modifiability. Um, and because no one has a crystal ball, right? You know, if I had a crystal ball, I probably wouldn't be doing family law. Um, but I wish I had a crystal <laughs> Believe me, I wish I had a crystal ball. There's a lot ball. of things I would be doing. but um, So we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know in those moments if that individual who's paying alimony, who's making $300,000 a year, you know, could get laid off tomorrow. Could right. be in an industry, and then we could be in a global pandemic, and 
You know, you know, then you What's a global <laughs> pandemic? I've never heard of that before. I, you know, that, what, what so, are the odds of that happening? What are the odds of, exactly. Yeah, once every exact, hundred years or exactly, so, maybe? Exactly, exactly. So you can imagine that has generated a lot of, of course. issues oh, yeah. as well. Well, it um, creates uncertainty. It you creates know. uncertainty. So I think the further out you get um, and the longer the duration is, because I can always say to my client, look, even if you were to get laid off and you agreed it was non-modifiable and you're locked in, but you only have one year left, you can pull it from assets. No, that's not ideal. Right. But at the same time, if you had six years left on it, well, of course, you that's could be different. homeless by the time you get done with your alimony obligation. Um, so those are the, I mean, that is, yes, an obvious post-divorce issue. Well, I would imagine it's also somewhat negotiable in the whole division is modifiable or non-modifiable. Absolutely. But what else could there be? So there could be, I mean, there could be enforcement. So you spend all this money and time and energy coming up with your property settlement agreement. Oh, and they're not paying. And then something is not <laughs> right, being fulfilled. Not right, okay, Or gotcha. there's an interpretation issue. Okay, I have an interesting one right now, um, and we, we're calling this, um, the other lawyer and I were calling this the ring case, <laughs> because there's a provision in the property settlement agreement, and myself and the other attorney were not involved in that agreement at the time, um, and the provision provides for the husband to get the ring back, which doesn't normally happen, but it was a family heirloom. Right, okay. And he was, uh, so he's getting the ring back. And then the wife is going to be entitled to, or she is entitled to, um, a replica of the ring. Okay. At husband's expense. Okay. So I didn't draft this agreement. Had I drafted the agreement, I would define replica. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> so you get 25 cent you gumball know, machine. That looks close. So what's a replica? You know, if I say I want a replica of the Eiffel Tower... That means I, you're not going to build me the Eiffel Tower. Right, exactly. I got maybe, you. maybe not. Maybe you're building me the Eiffel Tower. Maybe you're building me a little model right. that's like this. Good so, point. so those are the types of things that right. can come up because, you know, of course, the husband is going to say one thing and the wife's going to say another thing and say, this is what I was intending when I signed this. And if it wasn't defined, and now we're at a situation where um, one's, you know, I represent the husband and sure. he's saying, well, it was going to be like with a cubic zirconia in it. Right. And I'm going to, you know, and that's going to, and I, I check with replica. the jeweler and it's a thousand bucks to make. And the wife says, no, 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 I checked, I priced it out with jewelers and, and the, the, the exact copy of the ring could cost me grand. like $30,000. Yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean, luckily, and this is a perfect example of the, of the, the lawyer that you select in this process, the lawyer on the other side is a, a phenomenal lawyer to work with. And we are both lawyers. We've had many cases together, and we, we, we think outside the box, and we try to find solutions. These people have three children. They do not want to have to go to court and sling mud um, and get into um, you know a, a battle over this because guess what? They have to work together on a daily basis. Not to mention that what happens, and I've seen this a lot, is that one parent can influence the kids because they're angry at because of the, the ring. divorce settlement, right. whatever, exactly. The ring issue. Exactly. Right. So, you know, that's that's a you know that's an example. I would say there's no two you know post-divorce issues that are alike because you know well, of course sometimes not. it can be you know obviously rooted in the agreement. Um, I've had ones before where you know the agreement did not safeguard for someone becoming disabled, and the husband had an alimony obligation to pay that went on. Into perpetuity. Again, not an agreement yeah, not no. an agreement I drafted. It was actually until the wife sold the marital home, but there was no requirement for her to sell it at a certain point. So she never sold it, and she just kept refinancing it and taking money out. That wasn't the goal. 
But right. again, that wasn't the language in the agreement. Right. And the right. courts are bound by the language in the agreement. Of course. And that now that individual who had been paying the alimony was now completely disabled and unable to work and had an alimony obligation. Right. And so that was another, you know, now coming to the court saying, well, he can't perform on this contract. This is an, you know, an impossibility to perform. Uh, that actually went all the way up to the superior court on an appeal and then ended up, um, the parties after all that money and all that time and energy did reach a resolution that included um, the alimony terminating, uh, you know, and, and the wife had gotten a lot in that case through, through the years. But, you know, these are some of the types of issues that can yeah. come up post-divorce um, that, you know, you didn't, you didn't necessarily plan for. I think, you know, and of course I'll, I'll pat myself on the back on my property settlement agreements to think you know, four and five and six steps ahead. Well, of course. Because the goal of the property settlement agreement should should be that this is your roadmap. These right. are your list of rules. This is what you follow. If this happens, then we do this. But right. if that happens, then we do that. That's why typically, like, with the house is a big one. You know, a lot of people think, well, we, we can't have a property settlement agreement until we sell the house or until, well, that's not true. We just have to put the language in the agreement that specifically says, okay, the house is on the market at the time of execution of this agreement. This is what we're going to do, you know, and this is, this is what we're going to do in terms of accepting offers or in terms of relisting right. with this agent or at what price. And if the parties can't agree, this is what we're going to do. And, and if the house can't be sold, this is what we're going to reduce it by, or we're not, if we are in agreement to get a new realtor or we're not. So we do have to um, deal with a lot of those things. There's also, you know, provisions where someone's going to refinance and they have a period of time to do so. And there might be then contingency language. If they can't do so in that prescribed amount of time, then they have to list it for sale. And these are all that we put right. all that language in. Okay, so I you remiss that. if you don't include that. And many, many years ago, when everybody and anybody could get a mortgage, because you didn't have to, you could, right. provide, you, like, a you could just provide a blank piece of paper and say, here yeah. you go, you got a mortgage. You That's get right. a mortgage, you get a mortgage, you get a mortgage, <laughs> you all get a mortgage. That's right. So that was, you know, and there was a period of time many years ago. So in those property settlement agreements, they didn't address right. those kinds of things because they didn't need to. You know, everyone was going to be able to refine. But things have changed. But then when things change, and this is going back sure. you know, some years at this point, but there, you need to have that contingency. So, you know, those of us that, that obviously do this routinely and do this regularly know that we need to include those well, contingencies. Well, yeah, you got you to build know, a there. strong agreement that's ironclad but also flexible. I'd like to pick up where we okay. left off last week. Um, tax law changes as it pertained to uh, alimony was at the end of 2019, I believe, maybe 18. 18. Um, that made it so that it was no longer tax deductible to, I'll call it, the donor, and therefore tax-free to the recipient. Now, right. if I was making a massive alimony payment, I will tell you that um, I th honestly think it's not fair that it's not tax deductible because it's pulling right from my income. But let's say, for instance, I had a $5,000 a month alimony payment, or was, that's what it would have been. When they've changed the laws, did they adjust it to say, well, gee, you know what, you know, you would have gotten it as tax deductible, it's not tax deductible anymore, and then they kind of figure out what the tax impact would have been? So here's what here's what happened. It was actually a very interesting time. So they, I don't know if you recall the exact timing of this, but once they affirm that we knew it was kind of in the works that right. this was going to happen but they they dropped the ball at the end of 18 to say the other shoe dropped and said this these are taking effect january 1 of 19 right real quick 
Everybody's in trying the family to get right. law, in, 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 in the rules um, and in our divorce code, those had to be revised and updated, i.e. the support guidelines. Because during the time when you're separated but not divorced, we're doing support based on the Pennsylvania Child Support Guidelines right. and the guidelines that pertain to spousal support and, and alimony pendente lite, right, 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 APL right. for short. Now, prior to the tax changes, the spousal support APL number was 40% of the difference between parties' net monthly incomes. And it would be 30% right. if there was child support involved and the child support would get deducted. And it was very clear cut, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. Understood. And then from that, you're right, that the spouse receiving it had to pay tax on the alimony portion, not child support, never right. child support. Where that? And then the payor would get to deduct it from his or her income. So now, post you know, January 119, right, right, right. they had to get these new guidelines out, and now the guidelines are totally changed to adjust for that. Okay, question now, for is you, it, though. Is it perfect? No. But if I got divorced in 2017 mm -hmm. and I was given $5,000 a month, is it that it was deductible in 17 and 18 was no longer deductible no. or I was grandfathered in? If you had a signed property settlement agreement that was signed December 30, December 31st, 2018 or prior, yeah. you get to include it or deduct it from your income right, okay. and they have to still add it to their income. Okay, so and another paying, right. Yeah, so you don't lose out on that and still paying the higher number. Right, oh my gosh, yeah, that would be brutal. That would, right, that would be brutal. Now, if you are signing an agreement or being you know, given an order from the court post-December 31st of 2018, it's going to be under new guidelines and you're not going to be able to deduct it or include it. Right. Any, any longer. Right. Um, and so there's, um, you know, there was protection against that. And they did adjust that uh, to, to reflect, you know, specifically the, the, new, the new tax changes at that point. Right. I, I, boy, I would have been really angry if I was pre and then they flipped it and I couldn't get the deduction anymore. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be fair unless right. they went ahead and made adjustments to it. Because generally speaking, the person who's paying the alimony is in all likely a higher income, which means that they could use the tax deductions, pay into right. the lower income, who it doesn't hurt as bad getting the tax. So you flipped that switch on me. Oh. What we had at that time, which which made some cases maybe they were on the verge of settling. So at that point in time, we had a bunch of cases that if they were on the verge of settling, there was incentive sometimes to get that done by that December 31st, 2018. Yeah, oh, yeah, no kidding. But there was a lot of cases where they were paying interim support while the divorce is pending. Now, fast forward, you're now in 2019 or 2020 and you're reaching your full property settlement agreement, you're redoing all those numbers. Yeah, you have to. And the alimony, because now you're not gonna be able to say, well, I'm gonna rely on my support order on my interim support. Sure. It's not gonna well, work Well, I remember now, back so. in that year, like, yeah. depending on which side of the table you're on, if you're the recipient, man, well, I'm gonna kick this thing down until next year. And if you're the donor, you're like, let's hurry up and get this thing done. Um, now it's time as we hit the home stretch uh, to talk about the financial piece of it, okay? And the financial piece really takes into consideration three things. We spent some time on alimony, which, you know, as you had pointed out, certainly in Pennsylvania is, and I've seen it before, it's semi cut and dry because there's percentages of one income, percentages of other income. I also saw that child support, when I went through it, was based upon Again, percentage of income and number of children. Division of assets takes on a whole new breed. 
So let me just uh, respond to, to in terms of it being straightforward or um, with the support. Too many people think that it is so, so straightforward. And I'll get a lot of cases where they thought, well, I'm going to go you know, to the conference myself or I'm going to you know, go to the master myself. And then it goes south. And then they hire me and they want me to clean up the mess, right? <laughs> and, and, and that is because that's, you know, the earlier levels are the more informal levels. Right. levels. And so those are the, the cheaper levels to sure. be able to reach agreements. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while the guidelines are straightforward in the sense of, you know, getting to the bottom line number, where you start and how you apply to get to that bottom number is where the arguments come oh, in. Are you in terms me? of the oh. earnings and the earning capacities, in terms of how you're, you know, the, the um, child tax credits and the tax filing statuses and yeah, things like that. Yeah, there's more to so it. That, so that isn't, and so if you wait and you say, like, well, I can do this myself because the court's just going to run the numbers and it's boop, 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 and here's what it is. Um, you're not necessarily, that's I not speak necessarily from accurate. experience, and you know why? <laughs> because I was self-employed. And it was amazing, and my attorney actually had to hold me down a couple times because I couldn't believe when they said, well, just use your total income as opposed to your profit. And I'm like, you mean my business expenses don't count against my business income? Well, they do. I they, know. They but do. You, they do. They do. Oh, believe me, um, that was the and argument. there are certain expenses, you know, the most obvious one that everyone, you know, knows that gets added right back is like a depreciation expense. Of course. You know, that, that's of not course, an actual expense. Of course, because it's not expense. an actual expense. Nobody that's comes correct. at the depreciation police and comes and collects your Oh, I know, money. but you know what? My rent and my employees that's didn't count. That's real expenses. No, those get deducted. I could not believe that. Those get deducted. And then in the alimony, just to, you know, alimony post-divorce versus the, the spousal support while a divorce is pending. Technically speaking, and we've talked about the factors, um, you know, the alimony factors post-divorce um, get applied. And so what, you know, someone who is seeking alimony in the overall deal, they are under an obligation to establish a need for it. So that's the, you know, the arena where we're going to say in equitable distribution, we need to see your expense statement. All right. Because I've seen that. do you really demonstrate do you a need right. for, um, for, for, um, for alimony at all or alimony at a certain level? And just because the guidelines provide for your alimony figure would be 4000 a month, if you only show a need over and above your income for 3000 a month, then that's going to be your alimony number. Right. You know? And then on the flip side, if you demonstrate a need higher than the number, the court could go higher. They generally don't, but they, they could <laughs> depending on other things. So it could be that that's really not a 50-50 case, but they're going to agree to a 50-50 split because we're going to go higher on the alimony. Longer I got duration. a question for you. Just thought about it as you were talking okay. about it. Um, I like to call it, um, you know, in the, in the sort of criminal law system, okay? <laughs> Time served. Time served. So let's say, for instance, you're using the guideline of been married for 15 years, I owe alimony for one, you know, one out of every three, I owe for five years. If I am paying the spousal, um, support. spousal support for two years from the time of separation to the time of divorce, is it going to be five more years or is that time served? Well, it, it could be five more years um, because you don't necessarily get time served. And it depends on the amount of time served. So, you know, I've had a, I had a case recently where the, the time frame from separation to divorce was six years. Yeah. On a, on a, on a 12-year marriage. So a 12-year marriage with a six-year separation, they were separated for half the time that the marriage was, right. was at, you know, 
Um, so at that point in time, yes, that my client got some credit, we'll say, for time served sure. because you know it was it was an extraordinary time. Right. But if you're only paying that for a year, maybe two years, the notion behind the support while the divorce is pending is to be able to afford the divorce. And that's how the court gets out of saying that was for your alimony, which you need as your income stream forward because you needed that so that the payor goes out and gets a lawyer that costs a lot of money. Meanwhile, the person who's receiving the alimony who maybe isn't even working or making $30,000 a year, they'd have to represent themselves. Right. I you gotcha. Know? So that's to afford the divorce. So you don't necessarily get that time served. And that sometimes is a reason where if you do want to be divorced and you're trying to push it forward, you might sweeten the pot and say, okay, well, I'm going to offer a little more or I'm going to not seek any credit for that and just pay you the four years or the five years from now. Um, forward and to bring it, you know, bring yeah, it to can, a close. So, I could see all you know, the there's, there's all these things. But to, to go back to what you, your equitable distribution question, yes, getting into absolutely we're sure. running low on time yep. here. So, to go back to that, so the, a lot of people come in and they believe that, you know, okay, if this is going to be, and I'll use the example of a 50 50 right. case, right? So, okay, that means we're going to take each and everything in the marital estate, we're going to divide it 50 50. And I go, no, that's going to create a nightmare. Because if I have a bank account that has, 10,000 in it, you have a bank account that has 8,000 in it, I'm going to give you five and you're going to give me four, that doesn't make any sense, right? right? Just give me one. So, right. So, at the end of the day, what, what the court looks at, which is, you know, what the, what the lawyers are guided by, is to look at different types of assets. So, nobody's going to generally walk away with all of the retirement accounts while somebody walks away with all the cash or or assets that have a, a liquid, you know, uh, a liquid uh, okay. base. Okay, well, the thing is so, you're talking about two different things, and I'm glad you brought that up because, like you said, when you got retirement assets, the one spouse who makes a lot of money and will likely potentially have a pension, those retirement assets, I could see negotiating to give a lot of those taxable retirement assets to the spouse because you're gonna have a difference in income tax brackets in retirement right. where I think you can really proactively negotiate something even better. And what do you do then if you have an illiquid asset? And an illiquid asset more commonly may be the house, and we talked about this, where uh, the one spouse has a $300,000 IRA, the other, and, and there's the $300,000 house that's paid off, and there's no liquid assets. So in that, I mean, let, let me, the courts really do look at the house in that liquid because it can be sold and converted to right. cash. It can, there can be a refinance and cash taken out. So they lump that into, you got your bank accounts, you've got life insurance policies that have okay. cash value, you've got the house, you've okay. got, so in those cases, for example, if you have, and let's put the retirement on the shelf for a minute, between the house and the bank accounts and the cars and all the other things that could be sold and converted to cash without a tax consequence, okay? So when you have all of those things, if those all total a million dollars, but the house itself is 500, and the wife says, well, I'm, I'm keeping the house, then maybe the husband's going to get all the other stuff. Right. If it's going to be a 50, you know, right, in a 50-50 right, right. split, and then that's how they're going to, we're not going to say, well, you have to refinance the housewife, and you've got to take half the equity. Well, then she's going to say, I can't afford to keep the house. I have to take half the equity right. out and pay him. Right, and not but, only that, but she may not be able to, for whether it be credit reasons, income reasons, she may not be able to that's correct. refinance the house. So and I've seen that if, before. In that scenario, she keeps it, and then, 
she, he's getting his half, let's say, of the equity in the home by way of getting other assets that are of the liquid right. nature. I gotcha. Now, then you've got the retirement, and then we're going to try to, you know, strive to do 50-50 on that. There could be six retirement accounts. Again, we're not going to do 50-50 on each one. We're going to add them all up. Of we're going to, you know, figure out, and then we're going to do, you know, hopefully one qualified domestic relations order, right. which is the mechanism by which, you know, you transfer the retirement funds from one spouse basically to the other as a rollover Question into an IRA. Question on that. That's yeah. a quadro. QDRO. Yep. Quadro, yes. Is a quadro only applicable to, uh, like, pensions and 401ks, or is a quadro also applicable to a traditional IRA? So it's, it, I will tell you it depends on the company. And I will tell because in the quadros, I've had IRAs where they required a quadro. And right, right, honest, right. you know, so I, I definitely had it. But I will say I've had cases where if there's already existing IRAs and it's the same company, and we'll just say Fidelity, and yeah, they yeah. each have a Fidelity IRA, and we're just rolling over funds, a lot of times they'll have a form. That can be done, and Except you for don't one thing, need. You, the, don't, you don't always need it. So, okay. in my agreements, I'll make sure to put the language on both sides. The reason why I ask that question is because Quadro also affords the recipient the opportunity, or is it 30 or 60 days, to be able to access the money prior to age 59 and a half without paying a 10 percent so penalty. So, under IRS Regulation 72T. They can do that, right? And they can avoid, like exactly you're saying, the the taxes and the penalty. Oh, just the, taxes, the penalty, just the, the penalties penalty. and the interest. They can avoid the penalties and right. interest. They won't avoid the taxes, but they'll never avoid the taxes. Right, of course. None not. of us are going to avoid the taxes. Right. Um, so they can do that, and it's one time only. And so if you know, again, that might be a way in an estate like you're saying where there is no cash, and we've just got the IRA, and we've just got the house. So that could be a scenario where we are saying, okay, we've got the retirement account, and we're going to roll over a piece. To the, to the other spouse, right. and because they need some cash, they're going to take it in the form right. of, okay. you know. So it doesn't so, have to be the quadro. And last but not least, what do we do if it's an illiquid asset? And what I mean and by 70, that. Yeah, I just want to go back one thing. The okay. 72T will only apply to a 401K. That does not apply to an IRA. Okay. Just so, okay. yeah. What about illiquid asset? I own a business. My business is worth a million dollars, but... Um, and there's really no other assets. And you find this a lot. And a I lot. see this with clients that they put all their heart and soul and every extra dollar goes into the business or they're making nothing <laughs> because all of it is into right. building the business. How do you split up a business? Uh, so those are the cases where you hope that there's a house <laughs> and yeah, maybe right. a vacation home because then, you know, one person can keep their business and the other one can get the house and the vacation home, and sometimes that's going to, you know, wrap it up nicely. That obviously is not what happens in, in most cases. Um, when, when, there, when there's a marital value to the business, and we're getting business valuations oh. um, to determine what the value of the business is, separate and apart from the income. Because in Pennsylvania, you can't double dip. So if something is considered income, it's income. If it's considered part of the value of the business, it's the part of the value of the business. But it can't be both. Can't be counted twice. Okay. So there are certain businesses that I would say, and, and, and I don't want to say we know those, but where there's a kind of a business where the value isn't a value. There is no value to the right. business because it's discounted all the way down to nothing based on personal goodwill and other reasons. Well, of course. But it's all income. But it's income. Right. So then for support purposes, we're using that, but we're not, uh, there's no value to the business. Right, but okay. if there is a true business and there's equipment in the business that has value and there is a business where you could sell that to me, um, then there's, and if there are some discounts for personal goodwill, then that would be, you know, done by the business valuator. In some of those cases, 
The lawyers will have to decide, do they want to get one business valuator that's a joint valuation, or do they want to get competing business valuations? And by the way, business and valuations aren't cheap. They are not cheap. They are not. They can be five to 15000 I know it. That's... And, you know, um, and then when you want them to come in and testify, a lot of times, you know, it can create a, a bigger issue where you have competing valuations, and, and they're so far apart, it's not one of those scenarios where you can say, hey, let's split the difference. Yeah, right. You know, it's way I too know. far of oh, a difference. Oh, absolutely. That's when you're going to have battles. And so that can be that can be really difficult. Now, with with the business itself, a lot of times what ends up getting, you know, in the overall settlement, what happens is in order to give the, we'll say the, the, sp the spouse who's it's not their business, their share of it, if they can't get it between and betwixt other assets in the marital estate because it's just not large enough, they're going to have to get what they're supposed to get from that business in equitable distribution payments Somehow, over somewhere. time. Right. I can you know? see that. And people don't like to hear that and they want to say, well, what if the business goes belly up? What am I supposed to do? Now I've got a piece of paper. It's one of my post-divorce issues again and I'm yep. coming back. There you go. And then the business owner says, well, there was good a global it? pandemic, I, and, I, and I was selling something that now I right. <laughs> is obsolete. So now right. what do you want me to do? I know. That's tough. Well, believe it or not, we're out of time. This was this has been, I mean, we could have done a third <laughs> week of episodes because, you know, you talk about that because then then there's uh, valuation at date, of, um, at date of marriage, valuation at date of separation, and there's so many different things, particularly if the business owner owned the business for 10 years prior to coming into the marriage, and, and oh my gosh, I could, there's so many different things. But thank you very much. This is very informative, lots of good stuff. You and I can go at this for hours. <laughs> So, but we don't have Thank hours. you for having me, Mike. Uh, it was absolutely my pleasure. So I wanted to take this into, you know, gosh, we all know somebody who's gotten divorced. And unfortunately, in, in today's day and age, the statistics are pretty bad, you know, 50%. One of the things is it's extremely important how much it ties into financial planning. Because when someone is about to receive a equitable distribution or alimony or whatever it may be, it is so important for both parties to really evaluate the impact. And so when you're doing retirement planning, if there's someone who's 55 or 60 years old and they're about ready to receive, they ask me, Mike, can I live on this? Okay, how much can I live on? And it's important to evaluate all those things. They probably had to do for the divorce. How much money do I need to live on? What are my expenses? But then we have to project forward social security. We have to project, are you selling the house? Uh, what's gonna happen? Are there college costs that are gonna be involved? And one concern that I've seen all too many times is that the recipient of half of the assets doesn't properly plan. And all of a sudden they spend a lot of the money and, and then they're left in a position three to five years later where they don't know what to do. And so I can't begin to tell you how important it is. Here I am, you know, of course, I'm gonna say financial planning is important because it is. And, and so it, from both sides, and oh, by the way, you really need to understand the tax implications associated with the receipt. Oh, great, I got a quadro. Let me just take the $200,000 and pay off the house. Meanwhile, 
Uncle Sam shows up on their doorstep, so to speak, April 15th of the following year. So believe me when I tell you, um, as much as I hate divorce, and I've said it a hundred times, it's very, very important for planning. And again, I, I appreciate Serena coming on. I, I didn't even give you a chance. Please tell the camera, how can someone get a hold of you? I love the way you operate as a family law attorney. Thank you, Mike. And, I, and I, <laughs> I'll say this. I, although I advocate for those uh, that are going through divorce and help them through what is a very difficult process, I myself don't necessarily advocate for divorce. Um, these people have, have concluded that that is where they want to go. In fact, I have had those rare clients that have come to me and... I've said, you're not, you, you're not sure about this. Let me give you the name of a counselor, a marriage counselor. And if you still want to do this, come on back. Um, so I, I can be reached on Vitrano, Vitrano and Feynman in uh, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And uh, my number is 610-265-4441. And you can Google me and my email is out there as well. And I believe it is posted right below as well. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank and you, Mike. Thank you for joining us, uh, and I hope you have a terrific week. And, you know, you can always get through, go through me to find Serenia. Uh, again, thank you for, for coming to my show, Financial Planning Explained, and I am your host, uh, Mike Manager, Certified Financial Planner. Have a great, great week.